hear me? Good. It's an honor and a privilege for me to be here. And I want to share something with you that I discovered just this week. I was reading, I picked up, when I go to used bookstores, I always look for Ellen White books or Bibles or things like that. And I found this Councils for the Church. It's an old book, old paperback by Ellen White. And I opened it up, and the book, the back of the book broke. And so it opened up to this chapter entitled, Choosing a Husband or Wife. So I thought, I wonder if I did the right thing when I got married. You know? So uh, I started reading it, and I realized as I was reading it that it would be possible to read this if you're already married and say, well, I've already made those decisions and I've been there, done that, and maybe you wouldn't get anything out of reading it. But I tried to read it and ask myself this important question. What are the important principles being presented here? If you don't ask yourself a question of some kind, if you don't have something you're looking for when you read, you're not going to find anything, usually unless it just comes out and knocks you over the head. So when you read, you need to be asking yourself a question. And one of those questions is, what are the important principles being taught here? Now, let me give you some examples. Marriage is something that will, that will influence and affect your life, both this, in this world and in the world to come. A sincere Christian will not his, advance his plans in the direction of marriage without the knowledge that God approves of his course. Now, what's the principle here? It says, a sincere Christian will not advance his plans in this direction without the knowledge that God approves his course. Couldn't we say that about everything that we do? Shouldn't we be saying, I won't move in this direction, whether it's starting a business, buying a car, getting married, whatever it is we're doing, unless I know that God approves of what I'm doing. This is a basic principle that we need to always bear in mind whatever we do, is that we have to ask ourselves, is God leading in this? And I could tell you stories about how God led in my marriage, but my wife asked me not to get too personal today. So I'll skip all those stories today, and I'll tell you them another time if you haven't heard them. I'm sorry? Well, I'll, I'll just be really brief on that point to answer your question. And, and um, by the time I got married when I was 41, I think. Now, I have a twin brother, and that by that time, my brother had already been married twice and divorced twice, okay? And we're twins, we're twin brothers, fraternal twins. And so I realized that it's possible to make a mistake. So I was kind of afraid to get married because I thought, what if I do as well as my brother? <laughs> and I was a little bit hesitant. And, but it turned out a friend of mine, a friend of the family, was aware that I was not married. And my mother had told me, you know, you're old enough to get married now. <laughs> So anyway, I, but I, wasn't, I was kind of afraid. But a friend 
was realized that I wasn't married and started looking for a wife for me, uh, unknown to me. And they found someone who happened to live 4,000 miles away, and they thought they'd make a great wife. And all they had to do was just put them on an airplane and fly them over here, and we'd live happily ever after, <laughs> right? Well, that's exactly what happened. And so <laughs> uh, it was an arranged marriage because it was after we got engaged, this person came and admitted that they had deliberately flown this young girl 4,000 miles to meet me and that they went out of their way to always, they would ask me, like, where are you going this weekend? And I'd say, well, I'm going up to uh, Sequoia National Park. I'm renting a cabin up there. And this friend would answer, what a coincidence. We're going there too. <laughs> and so they would go and they would bring this young lady along. And so wherever I would go, my friends would be there and this young lady would then just, it was just a coincidence, of course. But it worked out really well, and uh, we ended up getting engaged. And after we were engaged, my friend admitted that she had arranged all of this. And, but she'd been praying about it for, she said that she was praying about this young girl, what to do with her. She had brought this young girl into the church, and her parents disowned her when she became a Christian. So she's going, what should I do with this girl? I'm in part responsible for get, her getting baptized. And now that she's been disowned by her family, what's going to happen to her? Where should she go? Where can she live? Who can take care of her? And she prayed like this for two weeks. And after two weeks of praying, this voice told her, bring her to the United States and introduce her to your friend, Jim Trott. So that's what Katrina did and brought her to the United States. And it all worked out exactly like she planned it would, or the Lord planned it would. And so I kind of learned from that experience that there's only two kinds of marriages. Yeah, I like, I, there's arranged marriages and deranged marriages. So, so now, now let me read the next line. It says, and this kind of fit me when I got married, it says, he, that's the person considering marriage, will not want to choose for himself, but will feel that the Lord must choose for him. And that's what exactly happened in my case. I felt I was not competent to choose a wife because most of the people I know had gotten married were already divorced for years. They'd been divorced. And I thought, you know, Men don't seem to be very good at doing this, at picking out a wife. They have a very poor success rate, and I doubt that I could do any better. So he will not want to choose for himself, but will feel that God must choose for him. And I think this is not true, only true in marriage, but it's true about, every, about which profession are you going to choose? Where are you going to work? What uh, kind of car are you going to buy? I think whatever you do, you need to have the opinion that he will not want to choose, you will not want to choose for yourself, but you will feel that God must choose for you. And I think that there needs to be a healthy cognizance, a healthy understanding that whatever we're doing, we need God to be guiding us and choosing for us. I think one of the worst, my worst fears 
is to be abandoned by God, to be separated from God. And when I hear that when Christ was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt separated from God there. And I think that's probably the worst feeling in the whole universe is to believe that you are separated from God. I think that would be the worst thing that could happen to you, to any human being. So we want to hope that God is leading and guiding in everything that we do. Okay, now, remember, I'm reading a passage here on, it's entitled, The Choosing of a Husband or a Wife. But I'm reading this, and I'm asking, what are the important principles involved? And the one of the principles is, you will not choose for yourself, but will feel that God must choose for you. I think that's true in every decision we make. For example, where, do, where should I go to church? Well, I, I may have told you this story before. I went to the university church down in Loma Linda once, and I sat, to a next, sat next to a retired pastor that I knew. And that day, Randy Roberts gave a sermon, and he said that the university church has a reputation for being a cloister for people that are overeducated, overpaid, unkind, unfriendly, arrogant, and proud. So that's the reputation that I hear from people when they, when they talk about the university church, the ones who aren't members here. They're, they're, the, the members tend to be arrogant and proud. And then, then my friend, who's a retired pastor, leans over to me and he goes, why don't you, why don't you join our church? You'd fit right in. And I, I had a decline. I had actually been thinking about joining the, ch the university church, but when he said that, I thought, you know, maybe I better not. If I'll, if I'll fit in that well, maybe I really don't belong here. And so I was trying to figure out where to go to church, and Ma Mala, my wife, says, well, come up to the Crestline. It's a nice church. And so I came up here, and, the, and Pastor Dan Sports asked me, as he asked all of you, to help out in some capacity. And so I learned a lot of things. I learned how to teach a Sabbath school very poorly. And I learned how to give sermons very poorly. And I, I'm learning how to, hopefully I'll improve. I'm learning, they asked me to be the treasurer. And now I can actually reconcile a bank statement, which I had never done before in my life. I had no idea how to do it. So I learned a lot of things by coming up here. I think it's been a good experience for me because I've learned to do things that I've never done before. And I think that's a good thing because life, life is constantly changing. You have to be changing and adapting. And I mean, for example, I'll give you an example of change. I work, I teach at the dental school and this last year, the income went down $1.6 million. And I've come to the conclusion, they don't know how to fix the problem. All the king's horses, and all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What we really need is someone to come in and start firing people. You know anybody that can do that? <laughs> okay. Anyway, so we have some real problems. And I'm beginning to think that, that you know, maybe I should start thinking about another career or another job 
because they really might start letting people go. So I have to, yeah, life is, so, is full of change. You need to be adaptable. You need to think change is coming, how can I fit into it? So I'm starting to think about what else can I do? Well, I know how to dig ditches, I know how to, you know, so anyway, I, you have to start thinking about doing something else. Okay, let's go on. Now the very next sentence in this chapter in Councils for the Church, it says, we are not to please ourselves, for Christ pleased not himself. I think in whatever we do, there's an important principle here is, is that we are not in it to try to get the most for ourselves, but we're to ask ourselves, how can we be a blessing to others? That's the principle that's being brought out in this. Now, one of you who's reading this who might be 75 years old, who's been married for a long, long time, might read this and say, you know, this does not pertain to me. But remember, your goal when you read is to determine the principles that are being presented here. And the principle is, in this case, it's related to marriage, but I think it relates to everything else. We are not to please ourselves, for Christ pleased not himself. So, Exactly. You, your goal, and this is really hard for men to understand. Our goal is to try to make our wife happy. There's an old Egyptian proverb that's like 3,000 years old, and it says a man should diligently study how to make his wife happy. A man should diligently study how to make his wife happy and contented. Now, that when I first read that, that was such a strange concept to me that I thought, this is, you know, I had a lot of trouble with that. But I think it's really true. We need to be studying how can we please the ones that we love. And, and it, does, it may not be, now the, the answer that the world gives you to please your wife, you need to give her a big diamond ring. Okay. No? No, that's not the answer? Okay. Well, maybe there's something simpler you can do. Like a few months ago, my wa Kelly, you, had a, you have a suggestion for us. It is. It is reciprocal. Because um, this is a general principle, and it's not just... Now, it says here... He will not want to choose for himself, but will feel that God must choose him. It says, she uses the word he when she's talking, but I think it applies to, you could put the word she in there. So when I'm reading a, a passage like this, and maybe she's talking about a specific person, an elder in the church, Elder Smith, I'll substitute my name in there and see if it applies to me. And often it does. Uh, we are not to please ourselves. And so in everything that we do, we need to be thinking about how can I be of service? How can I help? How can I be a blessing? And I'll give you a couple illustrations. Mala's brother-in-law 
named Robin called us up a few months ago. And he, Robin owns a, a big bus. It's a, what, a 20-passenger bus or something like that in, in the country of Trinidad. It's very expensive. I don't know, it's probably $100,000 or something. And he drives a route from uh, one of the outlying cities into the capital city every day. And he's making good money. He paid for his bus in two years. He was doing really well. All the other drivers said, man, you've got this thing nailed. You're doing really good. You could get rich doing this. Robin calls us up one day. He's making good money. He's got his bus paid for. And he says, what do you think I should do with my life? Should I keep making money as a bus, as a running a bus company, or what should I do? And I said, why don't you go to dental school or medical school? And he goes, how could I, like, what, what, why would I do that? And I said, you can help a lot of people if you do that. You can help more people than if you're a bus driver. And he goes, okay. He goes, I've learned that unless I'm helping somebody else, I'm not doing any good. God doesn't bless me. He says, okay, I'll, I'll think I'll do that. I'll go to medical school. So he gave his bus away to his a brother and said, I'm going to go to medical school. Now, I was shocked and surprised, surprised and shocked that he would listen to me. Here's a guy that's making more money than I am, and he calls me and asks for advice. Why would he, you know, that, like, it was hard to understand. But, so he looked around for medical schools, Loma Linda's too expensive, too hard to get into, so he decided to go to school in the Philippines, where it's about 10 times cheaper to go to school, 12 times cheaper, actually. So he's going to school in the Philippines, and he wants to be a missionary. But he said, unless I'm a blessing to others, God doesn't bless me. And we need to remember that. And that's, that you can kind of extract that from this sentence. We are not to please ourselves, but for Christ pleased not himself. And everything we do, we have to think about how can we be a blessing to others. Like my wife. Remember the Egyptian proverb, diligently study how to please your wife. My wife said she wanted a garden. And we had a little piece of land. It was about 9 by 12 feet right by the kitchen door. And it gets a fair amount of sun. And, and so I said, okay, let's make a garden. And, and she wanted a raised garden. So I put in, I went to the lumber yard and I got treated lumber, which supposedly will last outdoors. And I put in this border with treated lumber. And my, she goes, what's in the lumber? I said, I don't know. They put something in it so it doesn't rot. So I looked it up, and they put uh, tetra, penta, quadra, copper, sulfate, something or other, this long chemical that they put into the wood. And I realized that that is not compatible with growing food. You don't want that in the food because it's not healthy. And so I ripped it. I had to take out this border I put in. And I said, well, how can I? I had to go and buy some redwood. Redwood isn't treated, and it's got natural preservatives. 
which are organic in it. So I had to take it all out and put red ones. And I had to make, it, it's an irregular shape, so I had to cut corners and pound out angles, 45 degree angles. I took 90 degree angles, pounded them out on an anvil to turn them into 45 degree angles, had to do some steel work, and finally got this thing put together. It took me like two or three months to put it, and I dug the soil out, put in peat moss, fertilizer, uh, sea kelp, ground up sea kelp, that's for trace minerals. Did all these things, I was following Ellen White method for planting trees, and we put the tree, the plants in, and they're growing an inch and a half a day. I have never seen anything grow like this before. They're growing like crazy. After one month, after one month, we were harvesting zucchinis that were this big. After a month, I couldn't believe it. And so we, we hope to get some tomatoes soon if the worms don't get them all. But it's, it's really amazing. And I felt like God, I'm not a gardener, I don't know anything about gardening, but I felt like God blessed me in putting together a really nice garden just so that I can make my wife happy. So <laughs> let's get back to this, this passage here. It says, we are not to please ourselves for Christ please not himself. That's a really important principle to remember. Always think about how you can be a blessing to others. Now she goes on to say, and I'll paraphrase, don't make a fool out of yourself trying to please other people. Don't do something that's stupid just to put a smile on their face. Listen to what she says. She says, now she's talking about marriage here. But I remember this is a general principle. I would not be understood to mean that anyone is to marry one whom he or she does not love. That would be a sin. Now that's incredible language because in many countries they have arranged marriages where they'll pick your husband or wife for you when you're 12 years old. And you have nothing to say about it. I remember, I think it was in the movie Fiddler on the Roof, and they picked out, they were going to marry this young lady, very nice young lady in the movie, to the butcher in the community. It was this big, fat guy who was really coarse and cruel, and, and she was really unhappy about it. And she said, but mother, I don't love him. And the mother said, the love will come. When you have food to eat every day, the love will come. They were very poor. But she ended up not marrying him in the movie. But Mrs. White says, I would not be understood to mean that anyone is to marry one who he or she does not love. This would be a sin. But fancy and emotional nature must not be allowed to lead on to ruin. In other words, we shouldn't let our emotions be the only guide in this matter. In the book, The Ab Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, he said, in a, in, a, in a sense, that the mind must guide the heart, but the heart will encourage the mind. In other words, you need both. You need intelligent decisions, but you need the heart to lead you on. And 
that's kind of kind of way the way a marriage is. I think with with the woman adds the heart to the marriage. And in many cases the mind too. So but <laughs> we won't pursue that. Uh, but anyway, fancy and emotional nature must not be allowed to lead on to ruin. God requires the whole heart, the supreme affections. Our first love must be for God and then for our spouse. That's hard for a lot of people to understand. But I think if we love the Lord and he, we realize he loves us, then it's possible for us to love other people. If we don't know that God loves us, we can't love other people. So I'm not, I've only read one paragraph out of this, and I've extracted a couple of principles. Number one is, whatever plans you make, allow God to lead. Number two, do not make it your goal to please yourself. Make it your goal to please the Lord and to please those around you. Number three is, don't do anything foolish just to make other people happy or even yourself. The fourth principle is do not let your emotions be your only guide. They are in a consideration, but they're certainly not the only guide. So I've gotten four principles out of one paragraph, and I'd like you to be able to do that. Whatever you read, try to extract what the principles are. I read a book called Education about 20 years ago when Mal and I first got married because I was offered a job to be a teacher. And I got very little out of the book because I wasn't looking for the principles in this book when I read it. I got a couple of instructions out of the book. One of them was, teach the students what they need to know. So I went through the textbook I was using, a third of the material they never used, so I skipped it. And the students were very, very happy because it was the hardest material. These were all pre-medical and pre-dental students at Pacific Union College, and they didn't need to know about quarks or leptons or subnuclear particles, <coughs> bosons and things that they would never work with, even if they were working with an accelerator to treat cancer. So I skipped all that and they did really good. But today I'm reading the same book, and I'm trying to understand what the principles involved are and it's a different book now than it was when I read it 20 years ago. So I'd like to encourage you, whenever you read something, discover what the underlying principles are. It'll help you to remember the book and to be able to apply it in, practical, in, in practice. Now, I'll, I'll read one more sentence here. Those who are contemplating marriage should consider what will be the character and the influence of the home they are founding. In other words, how will this affect people around them? Let's say you get married to someone that you're madly in love with, but your parents despise that person because they're a good for nothing. They don't have a job, they drink, they, you know, they're really handsome, but they're, war they're wantless, as they say in Trinidad. So if we make <coughs> everyone unhappy with our decisions, maybe we need to re really reconsider it. 
and think about how we can work as a team. And it's the same way when we make a business decision or when we, when we she goes on to say, and as we become parents, a sacred trust is committed to us because we have to take care of these children. Now, but whatever we do, a sacred trust is committed to us. Let's say you're a teacher. A sacred trust is committed to you because you're caring for the students. Or you're a social worker. You, a sacred trust is committed to you. You're caring for the poor and the needy. Or you're a business manager. A trust is committed to you because you have to preserve the company and yet at the same time take care of the people working there, which are often in conflict. But with divine wisdom, hopefully you can find a balance there. So whatever position you're in, a trust has been committed to you. If a new neighbor moves in next door, a trust has been committed to you. And you have to try to ex help that per person experience Christ. Now, are there mistakes we can make when we're reading or listening? Yes, there are. Um, I got up at 5 this morning and I started to look at all the the ways that we can incorrectly read a book like this. One is called, I call passive reading or passive learning. And we do a lot of passive learning during sermons. Uh, if you, I, I kind of like to, I'm not really teasing people, but if a sermon is given, I'll go out in the lobby and ask people, what was the sermon about? What was the main point? And they'll say, oh, it was a really good sermon. <laughs> oh, really? Good, good. Uh, yeah, that's great, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And what was it about? Uh, it was about, um, I think it was about the Bible or something. Yeah, yeah, it was about the Bible. And so it's surprising how many times you, you can hear a sermon and you walk out. As soon as you walk out the front door, you don't remember anything that was said. And I've done it myself. I'm driving home after church and I'll go, what was the sermon about? And I go, uh, I can't remember one thing in the sermon. And that kind of scares me. And I think, what was I doing during the sermon? And my wife says, you were sleeping. <laughs> I was not? <laughs> well, anyway, uh, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. But there's a lot of, there's a, a story, there's a book, the, the author calls himself Brother Andrew, and the book is called God's Smuggler, and this guy would smuggle Bibles into Eastern Europe. He would have a truck with a false bottom, and he'd put a thousand Bibles in this truck, or he was working with a former United States Marine, and this Marine, who's interested in the ocean, being a Marine, he says, why don't we rent a big barge? a flat-bottom barge, and fill it up with Bibles and take it onto a beach in China and have a lot of church members meet us on this beach in the middle of the night and we'll, we'll unload a million Bibles in China. And that's what they did. They got a big barge, they put a million Bibles in it, and it was a shallow barge so they could get it within a few feet of shore, and they unloaded a million Bibles right under the nose of the communists and they, those Bibles went all over, all over China. 
But Brother Andrew said when he was a kid, he hated to go to church. This is before he had a conversion. And what he would do is his parents would come up and sit towards the front, and he would like to sit in the back because um, he was really fidgety. And so he'd sit in the back, and as soon as the sermon started, he'd run outside and go play in the forest. And then when the sermon was over, he'd come back, and he'd walk through the lobby, and he'd listen to what people are saying. And someone would say, I, I don't agree with that sermon. I think that Christ was, was wholly divine and not partly human. I think he was... So someone would have a comment about the sermon, and he'd listen to all these different comments people were saying, and then he would meet his parents, and his parents would say, well, how did you like the sermon? And he'd say, well, I thought it was a good sermon, but, but I think Christ was wholly divine. He wasn't just part human and part... And so he'd repeat what he heard, and his parents thought that he'd actually been there and was listening. And unfortunately, that's kind of what a lot of us get out of the sermon, is that we're not paying attention. But try to look for the general principles. What's the general principle that is being taught in the sermon? Even if you can remember one point, you might get something useful. And it doesn't, the speaker doesn't have to be a great speaker in order. I've heard people say, well, it was a good sermon, but um, the president of the conference gives a better sermon. Or somebody else gives a better sermon. Dwight Moody gives better sermons. Mark Finley gives much better sermons. You know, I wish I could listen to Mark Finley. But anybody can be speaking and give a good sermon because it's not the person speaking, it's the Holy Spirit. And so anybody should be able to give up and give a good sermon. So when I'm listening to sermon, I don't care who's giving the sermon. I want to know what's the message underneath it. I want to see right through the person to the Holy Spirit who's speaking behind them. So don't think that you need to have a famous preacher to become a great, to get a good message. I think it was, there was a famous minister in the, about 100 years ago, and his name escapes me at the minute, but before his conversion process, he went to a church one day. The minister happened to be gone. He was sick. So the elder got up and read a message from a devotional book. That was the sermon. He just read the message. And most people kind of went to sleep. The elder was stuttering over the words, and he was hard to hear. But this young man was listening to what he was saying, and he had this sudden revelation that maybe God loves me and cares about me. And he walked out of church, and it changed his life, and he became a, a world-famous pastor. I want to say Dwight Moody, but it wasn't Moody. It was Spurgeon. That's who it was. Spurgeon was converted by a sermon read from a devotional book by a stuttering elder in the church. It, in other words, it doesn't have to be a great speaker like Mark Finley. In fact, all of you have a testimony about your life, about how God has worked with you. And that is the most powerful sermon that you can give to anybody. We had some young people, call porters, come to our house the other day, 
And we started talking to them, and I tell them the story about how I became a dentist against my better judgment. And they said that that was really an inspiring story to them, and it gave them hope that maybe they could do something that was beyond their skill or ability to do. And they, they were really encouraged by that. Okay. Now, so you need to be searching for the principle in the sermon in order to get anything out of it. And try to take home one, one principle from the sermon. Now, how else can you, can you miss a sermon? Let's say you had some terrible problems during the week. And I'll pick one that someone gave to me a few years ago. We met a woman who said that her son had just been arrested for smuggling marijuana in a false suitcase. He had a, built a suitcase with a false bottom, and he put about two or three kilos of marijuana in there. And when he went through Barbados, they x-rayed the luggage, and they found something in there that looked a little peculiar. And they opened it up, and they tore out the bottom, and they found this marijuana, and they put him in jail for five years. And his mother was just devastated. Now, if you come to church like that, you're thinking about your problems so that the sermon is just background noise compared to the battle that's going on in your mind. You're not going to hear a word that's said. So if we have a big problem or any kind of distraction in church, we're not going to hear the sermon. Now, but that brings us to an important point. We need to remember that what we do has a profound influence on those that we love. We can help them through life by what we do when we allow God to guide us, or we can make everyone around us so miserable that they can't function anymore. And unfortunately, a lot of men do that. They make bad business decisions. They go into financial ruin. And that really upsets the wives. Or maybe they go out and have an affair. And then the wife is devastated by this. Her future is uncertain. Is she going to get a divorce? What's going to happen? And when a man does that to a woman, he tempts her not only to think he doesn't love her anymore, but he tempts the woman to think God doesn't love her anymore. And that's a horrible thing to do. When we betray a trust, we discourage those around us, and we tempt them to think God doesn't love me anymore. And that's a horrible lesson to teach someone. So we need to be thinking about what effect our actions will have on them. Now, we've all suffered from abandonment, betrayal, or being mistreated by others. You can't go through this life without being betrayed in one way or another. I think we've all gone through this or have made others go through it. But nonetheless, we can still try to hold on to God and ask him to guide us and lead us. Unfortunately, 
those of you who have any experience with social work, you know that if you come from a broken home, you're likely to start a broken home. If you came home from a, vi from a violent home, you're likely to bring violence into your, into your home or your marriage. If your father drank, you're likely to drink. And it's only a miracle that we can escape these things. And that's why I became a Christian. I, my father left when I was about 12 or 13. He drank alcohol. He ran off with some other woman, left my mother. And when I was young, I decided, you know, I don't think I should drink. And I'd end up like my father. And I want to be faithful to my wife because I don't want her to go through what my mother had to go through. But you kind of can make a decision. Now, just making a decision like that doesn't make you capable of carrying it out. Because I, actu I actually did start drinking a little bit when I was in college, but not long after I became a Christian. And that's when the decisions became easier to make. I felt like God was helping me and guiding me and giving me good friends who would encourage me. So we need to remember that even though we've gone through difficult experiences, we may escape from them. That's the hope of Christianity, is that you can escape from your past, from the bad influences that you've had. If, if we couldn't escape from our past, we, as Christians, above all creatures, would be most to be pitied. Because that's the promise of Christianity, is that you can escape from your past, and you can be a better person. Now, what other ways can we not, can we fail to understand? And I'll, I'll close here, but you can fail to understand a sermon because you engage in critical thinking. If you're really well-educated, you might miss the sermon altogether. For example, I was reading the book Education by Ellen White, which I mentioned before, and I was talking to a retired pastor, and I said, did you read the book Education? And he said, I haven't read that particular book, but I have a problem with Ellen White. There are errors in her writing. I said, oh, really? What's that? He goes, well, for example, she wrote that the French might get involved with the American Civil War. But the French did not get much involved, so that makes me wonder if she was really a prophet or not. And so that's what, he was a retired pastor from University Church. He told me he didn't believe in Ellen White because Ellen White made mistakes. But that retired pastor failed to understand a couple of really important principles. All, number one, all prophecies are conditional, okay? The reason that the French didn't get involved with the American Civil War, they tried. They wanted to trade guns, French-made guns, for American cotton that was grown in the South because they don't grow cotton very well in, in France. So they actually sent ships from France to trade with the Confederate Army guns for cotton, but... The, the Army of the North, the Northern Army, sent hundreds of warships to blockade the southern ports so that no ships could go in and no ships could go out during the Civil War. 
And that's one of the main reasons the North won the war is they literally starved the South out of raw materials and equipment. They couldn't get any more gunpowder. They couldn't get any more rifles. Whereas the northern ports were all open and the supplies were coming in. So when this pastor said, well, the French didn't get involved in the war, so that means she's not a prophet. Well, the French tried, but the northern navy drove them off. So remember that prophecies are conditional. For example, can you think of a conditional prophecy in the Bible? There's lots of them. What about Jonah? Jonah was asked to go to Nineveh by the Lord. And Jonah said, oh, no, not me. I'm going the other direction. So he ran off in the other direction. Now, the fact that he ran off in the other direction, does that prove he's not a prophet? He was a very reluctant prophet. Are we reluctant to do what God asks us to do? Oh, never. Not me. Usually, I have to be dragged kicking and screaming to do what the Lord wants me to do. When I was asked to be treasurer, I said, oh, no, not me. I can't even balance my checkbook. But the pastor said, would you be willing to try? Okay. Well, look at Jonah. He ran away when he was asked to go. And then he goes to Nineveh and says, in 30 days, this city will be destroyed. Was the city destroyed in 30 days? No, because the people repented. And so the Lord, if we repent, the Lord relents. That's a condition. It's a conditional prophecy. If you don't repent, this city will be destroyed in 30 days. But just because the city wasn't destroyed doesn't mean Jonah wasn't a prophet. And I think the same is true for all of God's promises. And this one about Ellen White and the French involvement, I think that was a conditional prediction. The French would like to get involved in the war, and the outcome could be really bad, but the North figured out what was going on and blockaded the ports and stopped that involvement. So I kind of rule out, when I talk to a lot of really well-educated people, they all have these objections against Ellen White, why I don't believe her as a prophet. But I think when I look at more carefully at their objections, I realize that they're often conditional promises. Okay. So, anyway, in summary, whenever you read the Bible or you read the spirit of prophecy, I'd encourage you to look for the principles that involve. And there's different ways of doing this. Substitute your name for the name of the person being mentioned. Now, that doesn't always work, but it does, sometimes does. And even if she's talking about something like marriage, you, you could translate this to have her talking about choosing a career or choosing where you're going to live. So what I like to do when I read is I translate it into the situation that I happen to be in to see if it is applicable. And when I do that, it makes me realize how much wisdom there is in these words. Now, when I try to, if I read Time magazine or, and I try to extract the wisdom out of there, I have a really hard time because there is not divine wisdom in there. 
I can't do it with Time Magazine. It's political stuff. It's about he said, she said sort of things. Or what are, um, they talk about American foreign policy. American foreign policy is a disaster. <laughs> it always has been, <laughs> almost always. So, you know, I, don't, I can read Time Magazine and I, <coughs> I can't say that I really glean wisdom. But when I read a book like this, I can find true wisdom in it. When I read the Bible, I find true wisdom in it because it's inspired wisdom. So I'd like to encourage of all of you, when you read, try to find what the principle is. Translate what you're reading into your situation and see if you can't understand it. When you work with other people, try to understand the problems they're having from their point of view. And maybe you can see things differently. Maybe you can find a way to be a blessing to them. Well, thank you very much for being so attentive. And um, may God bless you all. And may God make you much better listeners and much better readers so you can understand the Word of God better. Now, there's different ways of doing that. I myself... I tend to fall asleep in service, but what I found that I need to do is I need to go to bed early the night before. And if I go to bed early, then I'm not so sleepy. So sometimes it's a simple mechanical thing that needs to be changed. The attitude, well, the attitude. So anyway, think about how you can be a better listener, a better reader, a better learner. Ask yourself this question when you're reading your nursing books. This is really tricky. I'll read a paragraph in a medical journal or a medical book. I'll read one paragraph, and then I'll put my hand over it and go, okay, what did the author just say? And a lot of times, I can't remember a thing. But if you keep practicing that, you read it, okay, what's the important point here? Even if you pick out one important point, you'll develop your mind to start extracting this information and remembering it but it's a discipline that you have to bring yourself through. Don't read a single page without asking yourself what's important here. And when you do that, you'll learn a lot more. Now, another trick that I like to do when I read is I'll read something. The first time I read it, it just goes right over my head. Then I'll read it again, and then I usually have to read it at least three times before I start understanding it. So... I have to do multiple readings because the first time I just, I can't even figure out what the, where the, sometimes I have no idea what the author is talking about. But if I go back and I reread it, especially if I'm well rested, then I can understand it again. So I'd like to bless you or ask that God bless you in your reading of his holy word. And may he bless you and prosper you in all you do. Thank you very much. God bless you. Let's have a closing prayer. Daniel, would you come up and offer a closing prayer and a benediction? Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for the words of wisdom that you brought us this morning to recall how we can study your word more and get more out of it so we can apply it to our lives. Lord, as we Going through the rest of our Sabbath day, I ask that you lead us and guide us along the paths that you have placed before us. I ask this all in your name.